we're still, we're just plugging along through our series that we've called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? It's taking us through the second half of the book of Mark, and we'll be in this all the way up to Easter. We're going to be in chapter uh, 10 this morning. So if you have your Bible, um, oh, why don't, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read the first 16 verses. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Now, before I read this, I, I do want to say to you that this particular section of Mark is, uh, is quite confronting. It's uh, one of the most, perhaps one of the more challenging, one of the more controversial passages uh, in, in Mark and in Jesus' teaching. Um, and so we're, but we're going to try to, uh, by God's grace, uh, get through this this morning and, and that we might be encouraged and challenged. But I did want to say that up front. All right, so Mark chapter 10, starting verse 1. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. So Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. One of the reasons that we preach through whole books of the Bible at City Light is that there are things that we'd probably rather not talk about, things that are hard to talk about. And this section, this passage on divorce um, is one of those. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's controversial. It was controversial in Jesus' day. It's controversial today. Um, when, when Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking to a very religious audience, and it was controversial for them. So how much more might it be controversial for an audience that is deeply secular? So I want to start this morning, before I get into this, with prayer, um, that God would use this text to sharpen our thinking, to open our ears, and soften our hearts and make us more like Jesus. So would you join me now, just for a moment of prayer? Lord, we need your help, um, especially, well, always, but especially when we come to texts like this that talk about such um, difficult uh, subject matter, um, such that would bring up a lot of, uh, of pain and, and questions for many of us. Um, and so, Lord, would you help me speak uh, clearly, faithfully, uh, gently, um, help us to hear and have soft hearts that we might become more like Jesus that we might be comforted if we find ourselves um, hurting, 
um, today. Lord, we need your peace. We need your, your joy. We need your help. So be with us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So divorce is a topic which I, I can safely assume has directly affected many of you in this room or if you're joining us online. It's, it's affected me. Uh, my, my parents divorced when I was, in, when I was well into adulthood. Um, and so it's something that, you know, every situation, every family situation is different. And so I don't pretend to just because I've had one experience that I can relate to you. Um, but Jesus here can sit, certainly relate uh, to all of us. Um, some of you may have been through the agony of divorce yourself, or you've had people in your family, parents, siblings, who have walked that road. And, and I say that it's likely for most of you is that the statistics would bear that out. Um, so I want to give you two encouragements up front. Number one, if you find yourself struggling with this text or this topic, please don't struggle alone. There are people in this room, there are, myself included, people in discipleship groups who would love to come around you, pray with you, weep with you, um, journey with you, whatever that looks like in your, in your situation. Um, the second thing is, is that then, yeah, if this is a particularly emotionally raw topic uh, for you, uh, then please, please reach out um, as we press into God's love, grace, and kindness uh, together. So I said before, the statistics suggest that many of us in this room or watching would be, have personal experience and have been affected. Um, I'll just give you some of the stats um, from Australia that over the past um, few years, um, last year, 2019, the last year we have stats for, there were just over 49,000 divorces granted nationwide, um, and that was compared to 52,000 in 1999. Now, we know the population has been going up in those 20 years, so that suggests the divorce rate has actually been going down in Australia, which is, which is good news, I think, um, to really underscore that. So in 1999, 20 years ago, there were 53,444 children who went through the divorce of a parent or a step-parent. Last year, that was down to just under 42,000, so 10,000 fewer children impacted by divorce. But unfortunately, not all the news is good. You see, one of the reasons the divorce rate is dropping in Australia is that the marriage rate is also dropping quite significantly. Fewer people are getting married to start with. Um, over the last two decades, the marriage rate in Australia has dropped by over a third. Um, it's, in fact, it's as low as it's ever been in Australian history. Um, in 1970, 1970, so we're talking a long time ago, um, there were more marriages that year than there were in last year, in 2019, even though the population has doubled since then. So fewer and fewer people are getting married, um, fewer people are having fewer children, and so that means fewer children are impacted by divorce, but it's not necessarily because our view of marriage, or the sanctity of marriage, is you know, increasing in Australia. Jesus, as you know from hearing this text, is not silent about divorce. He has some things to say. Neither is Paul, uh, neither is the Old Testament. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, the very foundation of marriage, the reason why divorce is such a shocking tragedy, is found in the very first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Um, this text and the parallel text in Matthew chapter 19 show us first that God is the inventor. He's the imaginer, the author and the sustainer of marriage for, for his glory, first of all, and for our good. And so it follows that the, any breaking of the marriage vow 
is, is an offense to God who invented it. And finally, though, this is the good news. We always can run to God for help, even when things are so bleak, when, when, when life is, when we find ourselves in situations we never expected or never wanted. Um, the Lord is there to help us, not to condemn us. And, and so I hope you hear all of those things as I, as I speak. Let me, let me give you some context here. I'll explain why uh, Mark includes this account here. In verse 1, he, he gives us some geography. We see that Jesus has left the northern part of Israel, up Galilee, and he's gone south. He's gone south um, to, not to Jerusalem, but to the wilderness area on, it says, the other side of the Jordan. Now, why that's significant is that if you remember about John the Baptist, where Jesus is when he's talking, saying these things, is he's in the exact spot where John the Baptist had his ministry. That's where Jesus was baptized. That's where Jesus began his own ministry. That's where he is. Now, if you can remember back to Mark chapter 6, we talked about this earlier in, or sorry, last year. You remember that John the Baptist had a very um, colorful life story all the way up to the, the moment he died. If you can remember how he actually lost his life. Um, he was, he, um, in a confrontation of sorts with the king of the area where he was preaching, a king called Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was a divorced man. He had divorced his wife and married his brother's ex-wife. So both of them had been divorced, and then they married each other. And John the Baptist very directly told them that what they had done was in violation of God's law. And Herod, King Herod, being a king, and his wife were not real happy with John the Baptist for his confronting them. And so he had John thrown in jail. And eventually, his wife conspired and plotted and schemed to have him executed. So because John the Baptist stood up and said, no, your divorce, your second marriage is wrong. It's a violation of the law of God. That is why he ultimately lost his head, lost his life. And so now you can see when verse 2, when it says the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, we haven't seen the Pharisees since chapter 8, but here they show up again and they come to Jesus, it says to test him. The word for test there can also mean trap. They're trying to catch him out. They're trying to get him in trouble. And so they ask him this question about divorce. Why? Thinking maybe if Jesus answers in the same way that John the Baptist would have answered this question, the word would have gotten back to who? It would have gotten back to King Herod. King Herod would have been similarly unhappy had Jesus thrown in jail and perhaps killed, which is exactly what the Pharisees wanted. So you see what's going on here. This is a, a very controversial thing. And the, at the very least, they're trying to catch him out saying something that would be considered against the law of Moses, and then the religious courts could have their way with him. They're, they're really trying to get him in trouble. But Jesus does not back away from this question. He engages them head on. Look at the way he replies. He doesn't answer the question directly. He, he sort of serves back to them another question. He says, well, you know, they ask, can a man divorce his wife? And they say, well, what does Moses say? Which is another way of saying, what does the Bible say? You, you know the answer to this because he's talking to Pharisees who are Bible experts. They're like, you guys should know the answer to this. And so they quote back to Jesus the relevant passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
It says, well, there Moses allowed unhappy husbands to write divorce papers and send their wives away. And this is true. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, here's, what, here's the exact wording. He, we read, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, the rabbis, the Bible experts in Jesus' day, had various ways of interpreting that verse from Deuteronomy. There were different opinions around, different schools of thought, if you like. One group thought that divorce was only okay if the woman committed adultery, if she cheated. Now, in that case, the law said that she could be stoned to death. That was a capital offense, and then the husband was free to remarry. Another group thought that divorce was, was okay for nearly any reason, even for something relatively minor, such as, and this is true, um, if the wife burned the dinner that that was a legitimate reason to seek a divorce. Still another group went further and said if a husband finds another woman he thinks is more attractive than his wife, he can hand his wife divorce papers and still be in good standing with God. So it kind of raises the question, what did God actually mean? When this, was, this is scripture, Deuteronomy 24, what did he mean? Is this true? Who was right? Who was wrong? Well, let's listen to Jesus. Jesus settles this dispute once and for all about when divorce is allowed under the law. And here's his answer. It's not. It's not allowed at all. Deuteronomy 24 is not a grounds, it's not a ticket to divorce that we simply satisfy. It's not allowed ever under the law of God. It is sometimes accommodated. There's a difference between something being allowed and something being accommodated. And Jesus explains what he means. He says to these law experts, he says, the only reason Moses wrote these words in, in, in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy is that he knew how stubborn you are. He knew how hard-hearted you are. He knew how sinful you are. That's why he wrote these things. He knows the human heart. And so he writes this regulation. Why? To protect the wife who is being divorced. To protect her. That's the whole thing about writing divorce papers, writing a certificate. Because imagine what would happen if the, if the husband just said, get out. She has no protection under the law. She has no way to prove that she's not married. So no other man would marry her. She would have no way of supporting herself. She would be ashamed. She would be put out. She'd be ostracized, destitute. So this idea of writing a paper, a papers or a certificate of divorce is to protect the woman who's being mistreated. It's never written as an escape hatch. It's never written that, you know, Moses saying, well, guys, look, I understand how life is, and sometimes your wife's just not going to make you happy, and so here's an out. Here's your ticket to happiness. No, that's not what's going on here at all. This is about protecting people from being mistreated, from injustice. Divorce is always, throughout the Bible, a tragedy whose origins are found in the calcified sinfulness of the human heart. But see, Jesus goes further. He, he leaps over the law of Moses and goes all the way back to the very beginning. 
before sin entered the world, and he says, here is the will of God for marriage. Here it is, for your marriage or your future marriage. He says, marriage is an unbreakable bond that was imagined by God, that is sustained by God. And that's why we still read these words out at wedding ceremonies today. Centuries after Jesus spoke them, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. All these ideas and principles of marriage are being challenged in our world today, just like they were in, in Jesus' day. You know, we, we challenge today the duration of marriage. Is it supposed to last forever? Or can I just get out when it's no longer making me happy anymore? We, we challenge God's design for marriage as being a, between one man and one woman. We, we don't realize that whenever we push back against what God imagined, we always end up with an inferior result. Whether it's same-sex marriage or, you know, no-fault divorce, all of these things are inferior to the beauty that God intended and, and designed. There's so many ways that we can downgrade what God has designed. And every time we do, we're saying that our imagination, our understanding... Our love for ourselves is bigger and better than God's. And we've been doing this from the very beginning. You know, if you can remember Adam, end of chapter 2. That's how Genesis chapter 2 closes with Adam gifting his him a wife. Or sorry, God gifting Adam a wife. And as soon as that happens, you, it goes to chapter 3, where you see the woman and the man decide that they know better how to make themselves happy than, than God does. The best way for a human society to flourish and sustain itself and bring children into the world, according to Genesis, according right back to the very beginning, is for what, when God, what God joins together, what he imagined, what he sustains, holds together like glue. And it says, don't, don't let anybody break that apart. Katrina and I um, once took a, a marriage enrichment course when I was in seminary. Um, and the lecturer and his wife made us do something that we um, thought was a little Sunday school. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it for you today. Maybe you've seen this illustration before. And it's going to take me a sec. It's going to be a bit awkward holding the microphone. So apologies for that. But um, I don't know if any of you grown-ups in the room like playing with Play-Doh, like we do. I, I do in my house. Sorry, I'm gonna, this is going to be awkward. Bear with me. This is brand new. These are hard to get out. All right. So this goes against everything in me. I like to keep my colors separate. But here's, here's a sense what, what marriage is. Marriage is taking two completely different people, two completely different colors, and they become, in marriage, bonded as one flesh. And this is what our lecturer said to do. I said, you know, you need to take these and you need to smash them together. And you need to work them together over a period of time. Well, what happens when you do that with two different colors? They mix. They mix and they become brown, right? Or, you know, some color of, we hope, some, some beautiful fluorescent green here. But once, once they're joined together, they're not going to go back to the way they were before. Ever. They become one flesh. 
And if you try to separate this, if you try to separate this to get it back to what it was previously, it's, well, one, it's, it's pretty impossible. But two, even if you try, it's going to be painful. You're, you're never going to go back to the way that you were before you were bonded. That's why divorce hurts. It hurts a lot. And, and not just divorce. This, this applies even to just ordinary relationships. Friendships can be deep. There's a deep bonding that happens between people that is by design. You were designed for deep relationships with other people. And when those relationships end, even just innocently because people move apart or, you know, um, geographic distance or all those things, there's, there's pain there. Because people leave an indelible impression on you. you. You're not the same person you were before you entered into that relationship. And God says for when marriage, which is the, the deepest bond of any human relationship, that is going to be very, very difficult and, and painful to try to separate when that happens. So let's keep tracking in this text. Let's keep tracking. If God is the author and sustainer of marriage, then it follows that any breaking of the marriage vow is against his will. Any breaking of the marriage vow is an offense to God. Divorce is never acceptable. It's always, when it happens, it's an accommodation to human sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that divorce is never the, what we might call the least worst or the least bad option for a person. There are tragic circumstances, and we'll talk about those in, in, in just a moment. Starting in verse 10, the disciples get Jesus in private, and we see this theme in Mark. Disciples pull Jesus aside, or he pulls them aside, and, and they ask him for some clarity because they know how radical what he said really is. They, they know this is, this is troubling, and Jesus doesn't mince words. If you divorce your spouse and marry someone else, he says you are guilty of adultery, which, remember, is a capital offense punishable by death in the Old Testament. So what's he saying here? Is he saying that divorce is always wrong? What about when it's just one person that initiates it and the other party has nothing to say about it? What about that? What about cases of abuse and domestic violence? What about adultery that happens while the, two, while the couple is still married? Well, we don't have time to look at all the possibilities in, in depth, but I do want to mention the specific cases that do show up in the Bible itself, in the New Testament. Let's talk about, the, number one, the case where one spouse in a marriage commits adultery, where they are unfaithful. Should that the faithful spouse, the one who didn't um, cheat, uh, pursue a divorce? Um, notice I didn't ask, are they allowed to get divorced in that situation? The words we use here, I think, are really important. Um, it's important in every ethical decision. So this is whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old. When we approach a decision, it, it, it's, it's not really great to ask, am I allowed to biblically do this? Because when we do it that way, we end up kind of like the Pharisees did. That's what they were saying. That's what they came to Jesus to find out. Am I allowed to, is a man allowed to get divorced for any reason at all? And, and, and when we ask that way, when we frame it that way, what we're trying to do 
as we're trying to justify our actions before God. We're trying to find that safe ground that I can stand on that says that what I want to do, I want to make myself happy, and what I want to do is going to be, God, you're going to be okay with that. You're, you're not going to hound me for that. You're not going to be on my back. I can, I can, you know, you can just sort of tick off what I want to do, tick off that agenda. That's what we do when we come and say, am I allowed to do this? A better question than asking things like, am I allowed to, or how far is too far, you know, is the classic sort of teenage, young adult question, is to come to God in total surrender and say, what can I do, or what should I do, to make the light of Jesus shine here in this set of circumstances, as awful and dark and bleak as they might be, how can the light of Jesus shine right here, right now? What can I do that I, my life, as broken as it is right now, be a reflection of your beauty? In Matthew 19, here's what Jesus says about divorce. He says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So it's the same thing he says in Mark 10, except for two differences. Here they are. Difference number one, in Matthew, he doesn't mention wives divorcing their husbands. He only talks about the men. Mark is, in fact, the only place in the whole New Testament where he talks about women divorcing their husbands. And I think the reason for that is that Mark, if you remember way back in chapter one, we said Mark was writing this from Rome. And in Roman culture, it was acceptable for wives to divorce their husband. In Jewish culture, it was not. But in Roman culture, it was. And so Mark's contextualizing. He's making this understandable for Gentile Christians that, you know, it, this applies equally to husbands and wives, what I'm saying here. So that's the first difference. Second difference is that Matthew adds the accept clause. It's not, you don't see it, Mark. It is here in Matthew, except for sexual immorality. That same exception is found in Matthew 19. It's also found in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a situation of a man or woman who's divorcing their spouse because their spouse has invited another person, another image bearer, into an intimate relationship, whether it's a physical relationship or an emotional relationship. So why does Jesus include this exception? Because in an affair, the marriage vows have already been broken so tragically and so sinfully, a third color has been added to the mix that was never intended. And there is no greater betrayal of trust. That's why he singles it out. Most Protestant churches today, and we're a Protestant church here, say that yes, divorce and remarriage are allowed in the wake of this kind of tragedy. Ideally, with a lot of support and prayer and wise counsel around the people affected. But remember I said before, the best question to ask isn't, is this allowed, is, but rather, what should I do in the awfulness of this mess that God, that Jesus' light shines? There may be a way, and I think this is rare, there may be a way sometimes to walk what we call the road of the cross in, in these kinds of tragedies to extend almost unthinkable grace and forgiveness in the power of Jesus, especially if the unfaithful spouse is honest, confesses their sin, and wants there to be reconciliation. 
we, we don't ever approach the commands of the Bible on topics like this looking for an out, looking for a rubber stamp on what I want to do to make myself happy. The Christian life, and this is really the theme of this whole section of Mark, is it's a long journey of radical, self-denying obedience for all of us. And like all of us who've been forgiven much, we're free to love much. And that may include continuing in a marriage after an affair. It may include this. Perhaps the, the, um, you're in a situation where the, the, the spouse who has been unfaithful refuses to repent. They're not interested in reconciliation. Or in some many situations, the betrayal is just too, too great. And I pray this is never the case for anyone in, in this room or anyone you know, but we know the sinfulness of the human world. It's, it's unfortunately far too common. I, I also want to say a, a brief word this morning about domestic violence. Um, because you might wonder if that is grounds for an abuse, if there is grounds in the Bible for an abused spouse to seek a divorce. Sadly, there have been too many cases um, in the history of the church where an abused uh, woman, usually a woman, um, is counseled to stay in the marriage because divorce is wrong. Well, I, I want to mention the second place in the New Testament where there's some instructions on marriage. They're given to accommodate the tragic reality of human sin. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. He's talking about a spouse who is not a Christian, but that abandons their marriage. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. Not bound to stay married. They can leave and then you can remarry. Um, well, how does that apply in a situation of abuse? Let me be clear. Um, if you're married and, and you persistently use your words, your strength to dominate manipulate or physically harm your spouse. You're in danger not just of being divorced, but you're in danger of hell. There, there, there is no grounds anywhere in the New Testament that says that kind of behavior is acceptable for a Christian. In fact, it is the very evidence that you may not be a Christian at all. Now, that's not just me speaking. Let me, let me read here. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 we read, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. And that word liar is not just somebody who lies occasionally. That's someone who at the, at the heart, that's who they are at the core. That's their identity. That's not someone who is sanctified, someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is someone who is in danger of hell for eternity. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who verbally abuses another person is in what is what is in danger of hellfire. That's Jesus' words. He says, you do that, that's you. He says, you can just drop the act of pretending to be a good Christian because you're not. Go be reconciled to the person that you've hurt. In other words, persistent abusers demonstrate again and again that they are not believers. And Paul tells his disciple Timothy, he says, any person who doesn't provide, and he's talking about finances here, any person who doesn't provide for his own family has, listen, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, to abuse or neglect your spouse is a sign that the Spirit of Christ is not in you at all. 
Now listen, please. That's not to say that genuine Christians can't mess up, can't sin. Sometimes we do severely, but then we repent. We seek restoration. We cut off our hands if necessary. We saw that last week to be reconciled. The grace and the light of Jesus might shine in our weakness, not our perfection, but in our weakness. But there will be no cover for abuse and abusers in the church. And if that's you today, then let me say, brother or sister, repent, confess your sin, submit to the legal consequences, submit to the relational consequences of your sin. Listen, the grace of Jesus is more than enough, even for horrific sin. But grace does never, never cancels out the necessary consequences of sin, the necessary steps to protect the victims of your abuse. Divorce in the case of persistent abuse is still an offense to God, but it's an offense that's made necessary by the offense of hatred and violence directed at a brother or sister or child created in his image. So we don't have time to address the topic of remarriage, whether it's, you know, a second marriage is, is, is sanctioned uh, by the Scripture. It's, it's not addressed. Jesus doesn't address it here in Mark 10. But I can give you an answer to the question of what should someone do who's been betrayed or abandoned or abused by their marriage partner. In that situation, the first thing to do is to run to God for help especially when life is bleak, because he understands your sorrow. He knows your pain. He knows your experience of betrayal far better than you can think or imagine. Uh, This text closes with a picture of what it looks like to run to God for help. If you look at verses 13 to 16, here we've got some people, unspecified, maybe their parents, maybe grandparents, we don't know, but they're bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. They don't seem to be physically ill, but um, there are people believing that um, if Jesus would put his hands and bless them, that they would be better off. They would receive some benefit. And uh, the text, of course, the disciples tell them off. They say, oh, leave Jesus alone. He hasn't got time for this. And Jesus rebukes them and says, don't stop them. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It says Jesus was indignant at the disciples, by the way. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. According to Jesus, these kids coming to him were a model for every single one of us. This is how we, this is how we approach the king in a worthy manner, like, like kids. Let me explain. The, number, <laughs> the first thing he sort of says here is that the kingdom, the, the kingdom of God and the king are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. If you want the kingdom and its benefits, you come to the king. If you want to receive the king, you, you receive the kingdom. He makes these two things equal. He says the children are coming. Don't stop them. And he says you should receive the kingdom like they did. How? By coming to me. You want the kingdom? You come to Jesus. The second thing we see from this text is that you want the kingdom, you want the king, you don't come on your own. You come like a child, you probably need to be brought there by someone else. 
We come in an act of surrender, admitting our weakness and our helplessness, our inability to save ourselves and our inability to know what's best for ourselves. That's what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. And all of this is the best news for anyone who knows just how helpless they are. We've talked about marriages breaking down this morning and, you know, when the people that are closest to us just do the most unthinkable things. They hurt us with words, with violence. Sometimes they just walk away. Where, where do you go in those moments? What do you do? Well, you can receive the kingdom. You can receive the king. You can run to him, and that king will never fail you, even a little bit. Look at the kids being brought to Jesus for a blessing, and and then look back at the religious folks who came to Jesus just to trip him up. What's the difference between these two people, these two groups of people? Well, the first group wants to justify themselves. They want to kill the king, challenge the king. The second group wants to receive the king. Why the difference? Well, I think the key is in verse 5, what what he said to the Pharisees. He said, Moses wrote down regulations about divorce because humans like you and me, when we're left to ourselves, our hearts become sick, hard, resistant, rebellious. We, we want to fix ourselves. We want to believe that we don't need anyone else outside of ourselves. And so we get hurt and we put on the body armor and just layer upon layer upon layer. No one will ever hurt me like that again. What's the answer to a hard heart? You come to Jesus like a child. Let him exchange a hard, resistant, rebellious heart for a soft, teachable heart that is able to experience and know beauty and love and joy. One that's able to love because it has received love from the Father. That's the heart of a Christian. So this is some heavy stuff we're talking about this morning, and I, I hope you know that I'm not just addressing married people or those who have been affected by uh, divorce. But let me say to those of you here who are married or who will be married in the future, we are your family. We're your family. If you've been impacted or divorce, uh, by divorce or abuse, we are your family. Whether you're doing well in your marriage or whether you're struggling and you feel like your marriage is on life support, we are your family and we want to come and bear your burden. So please reach out and talk to someone. Weep with those who weep. We're going to do a series, a short series on marriage later in the year. And hopefully we'll connect that to an event where there'll be some real practical help for those of us, whether we're feel like we're doing well or, or not, whether we've been married for a few months or, or years. Um, so I'd really encourage you to, to make space for that in your diary. You know, if you need help convincing your spouse to participate, then we can, we can help in that as well. Um, the gospel is all about forgiveness at the cross of Jesus, and it's about Holy Spirit power to change. You don't have to be stuck where you are. You can confess your sin, your failures to the Lord, to one another, and find grace, find healing and freedom, and that can flow from your marriage. You can just picture what that could be, and God can make that happen.
I'll say this again. This text isn't just for married people, though, or those affected by divorce. This text is about how we receive the king. So if you're single, let me ask you, are you more like the religious Pharisees in verse 2, coming to Jesus to ask him to justify you, to, you know, you hand him your agenda and say, you know, let him tick it off and say it's fine, and then you go on your way? Or do you find yourself coming to Jesus with empty hands, saying, God, what can I do that your light would shine through me, that your beauty would be on display by grace through me, in my career, in my relationships, with my money? We'll talk about that next week. That's coming to him like a child. The beautiful thing is when your ultimate aim is to please him, to glorify him, to let his light shine through you, that is when you experience the most pleasure yourself. Life as it's meant to be. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis 2. That moment where Adam is looking at what God has just given him. Again, this isn't just for married people. This is for any of us who have received the grace and blessings and goodness of God in any form at all. That's pure joy, standing there with open hands, receiving from the Lord. And that's what he wants for you and for us, to receive him, to receive from him, and receive maximum joy, maximum pleasure. May that be your experience today and always as you press further into the kingdom and into knowing the king who loves you and calls each one of you in this room to be his bride. Let's pray. Lord, we have um, come face to face with our helplessness this morning. Lord, we know just how much we need you when we think about, even imagine, some of the things that we've perhaps experienced the things we've talked about. Lord, when, when relationships fail, when we fail, when we fail to live up to our own expectations, much less yours, Lord, your grace is enough. Your love is overwhelming. God, help us to know that and believe that and run to you for help in our time of need. Help us to be people, a family who can reach out and bear the burdens of people around us who are hurting. Maybe from something that happened years and years ago, maybe from something that's fresh that no one knows about, Lord. May we be a people that knows how to love like Jesus loved. Lord, that no one in this room, no one a part of our church family or in our community would have to suffer alone. Lord, may we be brothers and sisters for each other this week. Lord, help us who are, who are, are single or who are married, Lord, to come to you and asking in, in surrender, like children, saying, what can our li- how, how can our lives glorify you? Help us who are, are married to just, again, rejoice, be thankful once again for the beautiful gift of marriage. And may we, Lord, just redouble effort not on our, in our own strength, but in the strength you provide. Lord, to love our husbands, love our wives, as you have loved us.
that we might, you might be glorified, that we might have joy. Lord, we love you and we, we come to you, Lord, asking for your help and your grace and your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.